Welcome to the Mogul Marathon Real Estate Podcast. We highlight keen investment insights and strategies so you can become a real estate mogul. Here's your host, Yannick Kujo Virgil. Hey guys, welcome back to the Mogul Marathon Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Yannick Kujo Virgil, and I'm very excited for our guest today. Our guest today is Onaje Barnes. He is a 15-year buy-and-hold landlord while currently working his nine-to-five job. And he currently operates 50 doors without using any syndication. If anyone knows about syndication, it's basically when you raise the money to go out there and buy the properties. But with him, he bought 50 doors without using any syndication. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. But as of now, he manages his company with some vertical integration within the single family, multifamily, and short-term rental space. Manaje, thank you so much for being on the show. Man, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm uh, really excited. Congratulations on the show. Really love to uh, get with you, man. We got to catch up. We haven't talked in a while. Absolutely. So let's jump into it. You know, who is Onaje Bonds? How did you get to the level where you are today, all while doing this, you know, with a full time job? Uh, yeah. Number one, I'm a regular dude. That's that's number one. Um, I don't proclaim to be any really more than that. My background kind of more of a rags to hopefully, you know, lots more riches story. You know, I grew up in the hood of Houston, third ward, Houston, Texas, not so hood anymore. Single parent, uh, mom, four kids. We were the poor kids of the poor kids, straight up. But, you know, my mom was an educator. My whole family are educators. So we, we valued that, worked my way through high school, graduated salutatorian in my high school class. That took me on to the University of Texas at Austin, Hook'em Horns, big, big Horns uh, fan there. And um, there, you know, I initially majored in like uh, chemical engineering. Uh, a lot of people don't know that about me. But then I realized that I didn't have enough money to have because uh, that was like a five year degree and I didn't have enough money. And so to graduate in four and my money was just going to add up for four years. And so I kind of and engineering wasn't all that fun. So I took an elective class on economics, and, man, I fell in love with economics. I love economics. Uh, Anybody hear me speak? I'm mostly talking a lot about economics and real estate second. And uh, did that, but got through college, you know, did all the mistakes that everybody else made, got a bunch of credit card debt that I couldn't pay for, but got a decent job. I worked at a company called Foley's Department Stores. Many of you might know it now as Macy's. They merged with Macy's about three years in. Now I got on that job. I thought that I was going to, cause I was still kind of, I'm like on the, I'm still, I'm a, I'm a millennial, but I might be on the slightly older side of the millennial. So I was still believing that, you know, a company, like you could work for a company for 30 years. Like I'm, I was kind of in that weird generation where, where I, I bought into that still, you know, work for a company, get a 401k and do all that jazz. Right. And so I came in there busting my butt, working hard and all that good stuff. Three years in, I'm on the fast track. Everybody's liking me. I'm winning awards, whatever, whatever, whatever. And then, you know, I get an email out. They say, hey, yeah, we're, we're merging with Macy's. And yeah, we don't need y'all division no more. Good news is I pretty much quickly found a job with uh, JCPenney Department Stores. And when I was there, I was a buyer uh, and a planner. And that whole career, and I'm still in that career. And it's a dope career. Like, like truly, like, I, I you know, I teach on that. But... I was really, really lucky. And I tell people that I was lucky because I learned early that 
a company is not it's not their job to get me rich. It really isn't. Right. It, their job is to provide. It's, it's a job for me. It, my job is to provide services and their job is to pay me. Right. But not to get me rich, not to give me generational wealth, not to retire me early or even retire me at all. Like it's not their job. And I think the previous generation kind of got caught up in that. Right. And so I feel like I was lucky because I learned that lesson at 25. That led me to say, OK, if they're not going to do it, that means I got to do it. And if I got to do it, what's the path? And so much like many people, a good friend of mine put me on to Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I read a cash flow quadrant first, though. Um, I think that's the better book. I did read both of them, but I think that's the better book. And then once you start reading that, then you kind of start jumping into real estate. You start talking about cash flow and passive income. So I spent about a year researching that. And then that made me say, I need to get my credit right. Because I actually had like crappy credit. Part of the story was that I had my college sweetheart with me and we moved from Houston to Dallas and she was moving for my quote unquote dope job. But then I had bad credit and I couldn't even get approved for an apartment. So mm. all these things kind of happened in one year. And that really kind of motivated me to kind of say, OK, so you got bad credit and you majored in economics. Like how that work? <laughs> so <laughs> like that doesn't, that doesn't make sense. So, you know, I kind of started putting stuff together, started researching real estate, got on with another company, another Fortune 100 company, and I got on with them and I was able to move back to Houston. And part of that move, we decided that we wanted to buy us a house because we're getting married. Same thing everybody else does, right? Big difference, though. We started looking for a home. I went through the NACA program. Right when we started looking for a home, I want to say I bought my house one month after Lehman Brothers crashed. Wow, right? So wow. That, that changes the game a little bit, right? Yeah. And that uh, that was crazy. So we ended up buying a foreclosure. The movement in the market was like super fast, right? Yeah. So we did end up buying a foreclosure. That foreclosure was originally listed for 180. We got it for 135. Cause that's just where the market was, right? Like you could just go gangster on these banks, right? And it's not like that today, huh? <laughs> no, no, <laughs> not as easy as it was. Well, it, it wasn't easy then either, right? Because lending wasn't easy. You didn't have cheap money. You didn't have everybody uh, teaching classes and courses. You didn't have Instagram. You didn't have Facebook. There was no information out there, right? And the whole world was on fire. Let's let's remember that. The world was on fire. People talking about the recession these days, they don't, that's a whole nother ball game, right? Yeah. The world literally was on fire and real estate was the cause, right? That's a whole different game. Like the, everybody loves real estate now, but back then it was like, you kind of stupid, bro. Like, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> my friends is like, what kind of, did you bump your head somewhere? <laughs> you know, so yeah. are, are you not re reading the news? So, you know, we bought it for 135. I actually got a, a NACA 203K loan through uh, FHA, which means they gave me money to, to rehab the property. So I had done my homework. You see what I'm saying? I had done the research. And so um, I ended up only having to bring $1,800 for taxes to the closing table. Okay. And they gave me $30,000 to rehab the property. So I did that, didn't know what I was doing, got cheated by some contractors, ended up having to paint the whole house myself because, you know, my money was gone or whatever. But it was our house. And I knew that. And that was part of my strategy was to play around 
on my property first, right? Even though I used some money. So six months later, even during the financial crisis, even though like, so six months later, we're still in the middle of 500,000 jobs being let go every week, like every every yeah. month, 500, 700. Like, it was that bad, right? Like it was millions of jobs being lost, you know, on a monthly basis. And, but I still had equity and I got a new appraisal and that property was worth 240, even in the crisis, right? Wow. And so I was like, whoa, whoa, what can I do with this equity thing y'all talking about? <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and I had done some homework. And so I kind of fell into the, they didn't call it the birth strategy back then. Okay. Birth strategy was invented by, you know, or the acronym was kind of came up by, you know, bigger pockets and all those guys or whatever. But back then I was one of the original members on bigger pockets and it, where it was just a website. Like, like my join date is like 2009, but they didn't have no podcasts or any of that stuff back then. So anyway, got the burr, did a refinance, had $40,000 in my pocket. Mind you, my background, I ain't never seen that kind of money in my life. <laughs> right? Life-changing money. Oh, I'm balling in, right? <laughs> so I'm still 26, but I was, I did have a strategy. I did build out a strategy. And so I think maybe a couple months later, we found another foreclosure listed for like 65. I offered the 40 because that's all I had. And you know what? They took it because <laughs> that's the world. <laughs> And I ain't have no money then. And I opened up a Home Depot card um, and I used that with some sweat equity. And I want to say two weeks later, I had my first tenant at $900 a month and I'm off to the races. There's a lot to, to unpack, a lot there, to unpack there. So I'm going to leave it yeah, there. Yeah, a lot to unpack from just having that pivotal, what I call a red pill moment when something happens in your life and you have to make a decision, right? Your back is up against the wall. It's a pivotal change in your life that you have to do to move yourself forward or put yourself in a better position to investing at the bottom, investing when there's a crisis. I mean, I'm sure there's, there, there was some sort of fear maybe, you know, going in at the bottom, but probably coupled that with some some research to help you back up, you know, exactly what you were doing. But starting at, you know, age 25, was there anything in your in your in your life that you had to go through that you figured out that, hey, you know, this wealth journey, you know, this is important to me after even reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad, you know, why real estate specifically? Well, real simple. I hate it. I hate it being poor. I hate it. Like when when you really going hungry in life, that can be a hell of a motivator. Hmm. Uh, and so being the, the poor kid among poor kids, you know what I'm saying? I got a whole lot of stories to tell you about being the poor kid among the poor kids. And so, you know, that was a catalyst. Now, dope part about it is I had a mom that she got all four of us through college. All four of us graduated, right? Now, there, everybody else is educators, and I'm the black sheep or whatnot um, in <laughs> business. But uh, I did, I've always had a fond understanding of business. Um, that has always kind of come easy to me. And I knew I didn't have no trust fund. I didn't have no money that, you know, I can go. None of my friends had money. So, like, where was I going to raise capital from? So, you know, for me, it was real estate when you really dig in deep. Because I looked into buying franchises, doing this, doing that. All that needed money, right? And if you back up my story, I found my first loan was a loan that I had 0% down. So, you know, this was the lack of money actually made me think outside the box and try to figure out ways to kind of how do I how do I marry the two things together? OK, I ain't got no money, but I hate being broke. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. So, 
you better use your brain and and think through and and, and dig through some uh, crevices and figure it out. Yeah. I myself, I came to this country when I was 10 years old and, you know, we came with a bag of clothes. But fortunately, you know, it seems like Rich Dad Poor Dad has helped more real estate investors than any other book I out there. Book. You know, every time I run into a real estate investor, you know, it seems like Rich Dad Poor Dad is like the number one book. Okay. So you, you know, you, you were working a job. There was a shift in, in the job itself, right? They were saying that they were merging. And, and so that forced you to move into other investments, specifically real estate from reading and doing your research to eventually, you know, investing in the downturn. So take me on a timeline from like doing that first bird deal, right? Taking that and then going to buy another property and then scaling up to like where you are today. Like, how have you been able to like accomplish that? Yeah. So one, I'm a bird guy, but like I said, I didn't know the formal definition of it. Like, I, and I'm a firm believer that bird is just real estate. So people saying, oh, well, you teach bird and I teach this. I'm like, well, no, I'm teaching real estate. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I just think that's something that real estate investors going to figure out one way or the other. Right. So I didn't quite figure that out as a strategy. I just kind of slipped into it on my first property. The one we still we still live in this home, by the way, this, I'm mm-hmm. in the original home that I bought on my bird deal. So I am quite conservative. OK. Um, I don't I don't need to keep up with the Joneses or any of that kind of stuff, because I also read The Millionaire Next Door. That book stuck with me, too. So I was buying in the down market. So properties were I wouldn't say they were affordable for me because, you know, 20 grand was a lot of money back then for me. 15 grand but money was still like this was not like yeah, especially in your mid 20s. Yeah. Like I didn't have, like I said, a lot of stuff. So one thing first was, OK, that first deal, I'm renting out for nine hundred dollars a month. I did get that cash out refi. That cash out refi note, all in taxes and insurance was four twenty five. So I'm cash flowing four hundred bucks. And back then, that four hundred bucks paid paid for a car note and insurance. Okay, so off bat, I'm saying okay, my cash flow is going up. My wife was a teacher. I had a modest income that's modest today, but it was decent, right? We were middle class, but not balling, right? Teacher ain't nobody balling on teacher salary. But what we could, we always lived up on our means. Even the house that we live in today, we bought that under me and not her. So that was one thing that we never doubled debt. I never, you know, we always lived under one income. Again, very conservative. And so I was scratched. And one good thing about my current job is I did get a little bonus once a year. And instead of going on a trip or whatever, like everybody else do, that bonus went towards some type of purchase of real estate. Right. And so I want to say, um, what was my second property? I want to say my second property, I didn't have no money, so I used hard money on that. Now I'm deep in the crisis right now. I'm like, this is 2009, so you you deep into it. Yeah. So everybody used hard money today, and I'm like, man, y'all tripping, because hard money is by definition hard. I'm on hard money, and they like two, three points, 15, 16% interest rates. This wasn't this little nice 7% interest rate people dealing with these days, right? Like, yeah. that was... 15% interest rate. And more importantly, and I hate to call out some people, but there were zombie banks right now. You you ever heard the term zombie banks? I'm not sure. How no, no, no. I'd love to learn more. You never heard this term zombie banks? No, no. Back in 2009, for context, I was uh, like in, in 12th grade. So <laughs> yeah. So, so zombie banks, they called all the big, but you, you remember too big to fail, right? Right. Okay. So too big to fail basically meant that these banks should have failed, right? 
And we're talking about right. the big ones, like Wells Fargo and Bank of America, right. public knowledge. They should have failed, but the government did not let, let them. So the joke was that they were running around like the zombie because they was dead. And so, um, and this was like real, like this was real life, like Bank of America, whatever. So I didn't quite understand this. I was reading this stuff in the news clippings, but I didn't understand what it meant. So, so what's the problem with with most banks being zombie banks when you're talking about being a burst strategy guy and you're using hard money? How are you going to get the refi? Right, exactly. So I had a delicious deal. I'm talking about delicious, bro. Like this deal here was my second deal was twenty eight thousand dollars. I got eight grand from the hard money guy, so I'm in what thirty six grand. And this is a and I'm I'm in and out of this thing in three weeks, man. Roof, all that new AC unit, I'm good. I'm in there nine fifty. I don't care what market you in, that money add up, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, that money add up, but not to a zombie bank. Yeah, was it was it an issue? You couldn't refi out the property, or what happened? I'm three weeks into this thing, ready calling them back to refi, and I got a six month term, so they not they weren't giving out these eighteen month. There wasn't no bridge financing. They definitely wasn't giving bridge financing on commercial back then. Like they ain't had this 12, 18 month hard money. It was six months to give me my money back when I'm taking your house, right? And running your credit. Like that's what it was back then. And so um, so I'm three weeks calling them back. And I'm calling every bank under the sun. Oh, by the way, they didn't have temp to permanent financing back then either. They just had hard money refi with somebody else. Everybody either kicking the can. Lying to me, saying that they can do the deal, kicking the can, or they just can't do the deal. Man, I'm six months into this sucker, still paying hard money, fifteen percent prices mm. at this, but I'm cash flowing. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm not, I'm stressing, but I'm not stressing. I'm stressing right. hard though, right? And so uh, it took me eight months. I had to get two extensions where I had to pay points on. Okay, mm. uh, uh, yeah, this is painful on a good deal. This is a good deal, and so uh, I had to do that. But I finally got it refied with a with a bank, but it wasn't even a bank. It was like a little local small lender bank or whatever. But the zombie, I went to three of the zombie banks. They denied me. All everybody was denying me. I had good credit. I had decent credit at this point. Like everything on paper was right. Um, so that taught me a hard lesson. That hey man, you need to learn lending. So I definitely learned lending. I'm not a lender, but I know it very very well. I know my lending products. If I'm gonna get into it, and it scared me from doing hard money for a long long time. And so from there. Uh, I just kept buying one property a year with some bonuses, with some extra cash or whatever I could do, whatever I could scramble up. I, I bought properties every way I could figure it out how to buy a property, right? It was going direct to seller, um, putting 20% down in some cases, getting a traditional 30. I always wanted to end up with a traditional 30. Let me be real clear about that. I'm a big fan of long-term cheap debt. That's how you win in this game. I don't believe in variable financing. I don't believe in all this. Uh, this, this I mean, get how you need to get in, but long at the end of the day, you want to get some long-term cheap debt. So I'm buying one property a year, next couple of years, and I'm starting to try to like get aggressive. And also, I'm managing my own properties. I only got ones and twosies, right? So I'm I'm learning rehabs. I'm rehabbing them all myself, right? So I'm learning different aspects of the game. And uh, you know, a couple more years go by, and my original goal was just to have five. And I think I had five. I want to say I hit my original goal was to have five paid off by the time I was 35. I'm pretty sure I hit that goal at 31, if I can remember correctly. And then I kept buying, kept learning, moving faster. So each time I'm getting better, right? I'm moving quicker, getting better tenants and, you know, learn Section 8. I got a course on Section 8 coming out. Section 8 really got me through the hard times of the market. 
right? Because you get your rent paid on time, guaranteed, right? Guaranteed money. I love it. Guaranteed money. I was buying in my own neighborhood. And so, and like I said, I'm kind of from the hood, so I kind of deal, I can deal with situations that maybe the average person can't. Um, and so I want to say this was about three. So years go by. So I get up to about seven, eight, nine. So once I start to get up seven, eight, nine, that's kind of where I'm like, okay, I'm starting to get anxious because I just hit my goal. Right. Mm-hmm. Now that based on me not having no kids. So I got two kids and you know, each time I <laughs> all the property, um, we got a story where my wife was, um, she was one week away from dropping the baby or whatever and her due date. And I thought ta- I decided to take a sledgehammer to one of our bathrooms <laughs> uh, to redo the bathroom before the baby got there. I got it done though. But but I was very aggressive. I always use catalyst or hard financial times to propel me forward. So every time she got pregnant, I went out to go got more aggressive. That means I gotta pay for this kid because I didn't want my lifestyle to change, right? And I paid for this kid because guess what? This full five hundred dollars that I'm making, that's some money, right? That do something for me back then. So I got about nine properties and seven or eight. I really started to get anxious that this thing wasn't moving fast enough. Because at this point, I'm I'm buying in. I'm listening to Bigger Pockets every day. I'm listening to everybody every day. I'm listening to the real estate guys every day, which is a dope podcast, by the way. They're really good. And I'm like, why why is this not moving? Why am I not retired? They told me that I was supposed to be rich, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and it was adding up. And um and that's kind of where I start to really dive into multifamily and understanding multifamily investing. And I got a real good story on how I got the multifamily. The thing in real estate is that, you know, it's a long-term play, right? And if you're able to utilize something like the birth strategy and continuously buy properties over time, I mean, that's literally how you create generational wealth. The cash flow is just a way to create those different streams of income and uh, create that financial freedom so you can afford, you know, trips and things with your family and not necessarily rely on just working a job. So how did you do all of that while working a job is my question, because that seems... Like you're doing a whole lot. When we talk about balancing a full-time job with real estate investing, how do you do that today? You got to want it, man. This ain't no get rich quick scheme. And this ain't no, you know, a lot of people like, oh, well, you got to do this and do this and you ain't got to do nothing. I don't know about all that, right? Like I worked, I worked very, very hard. Um, and you know, I'm social, I'm in the fraternity and all that. And there were times where I couldn't go to the party while I was coming to the party late because, you know, I just finished the rehab and my guys need to be paid that night. Right. Or whatever. And I would go, you know, 11 o'clock at night to go pay my guys out. So I would have the credibility with them so they could work harder. Right. You know, I was getting up, uh, and working eight to five. And I would come home and maybe kiss the wife and kiss the kids or or not and 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 go out here and go work. Um, go go collect rent or what you know, back then I was still I've always been digital with my rent collection, but you know, whatever it was, I was doing it. And I'm not gonna lie, you know, when four or five properties with the right systems, you know, using home warranties and di- digital payments and stuff like that, I mean, you can do that and it's not be a burden, right? And so really I would say my first, I would say seven, eight years, uh, it definitely was passive. So I want people to understand that it can be passive. My first four, five, six, seven, eight properties. It, 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 it can be passive. I think once you start to get above six, you need to start thinking about things differently, right? But you can do this on your own with five, I, I think. Um, and, you know, being, like you said, burning, scrapping dollars together, you know, take making sacrifices. I, I drove the same beat up Camry for, I don't know, 12, 13 years. So I was making those type of financial sacrifices, right? That other people would, you know, ball on. And um, so I was making those. But from a work perspective, you know, it was a lot of balance i got a lot of crazy stories i mean i was i would try i had to travel for work 
I had a three year span where I would travel like eight times a year on the plane and stay away for like a week or whatever. So that you had to kind of build some systems, right? Somebody called with a leaky toilet, like they need their toilet fix, man, or whatever, right? They got Houston something flood or whatever. So we had a lot of that kind of stuff go on, but it definitely took some balance. Real estate became a hobby for me, a fun hobby. I enjoyed the game. So if you don't enjoy some aspect of real estate where they could be design, construction, rehab, analysis, something that's going to be tough to balance. But for me, you know, plenty of night where, you know, I'm watching TV or my wife's watching TV. I'm on my phone looking at properties. That's what I did for fun. You sound like me. Oh, we all the same, man. <laughs> <It's> the same. <laughs> you know. So if, if you're not really doing that, then it's going to be tough to balance, right? So balancing becomes a lot easier when it's not work. And it become, it is work, but when it's like, oh, yeah, I mean, I'm going to make 50 on this deal. Okay. Like, you know, when, you, when you're thinking mm-hmm. like that, or I'm going to make X amount of cash flow, then, then it, gets, it gets a lot easier. Great story. I think, you know, if you want to be a big time or you want to grow your portfolio and be a big active investor, you know, you have to have some sort of passion for this game because there's so many issues that happen on a daily basis. And especially when you are growing your real estate company, you have to deal with all of the growing pains. The sweet spot is, you know, once you start crossing five doors, you're building a business, right? You have to start creating those systems. You know, somebody's going to have to answer those maintenance tickets. You know, somebody's going to have to, you know, do a lot of things that might be small and requires a lot of time. But at the end of the day, somebody has to do that until you're able to like hire someone. And, and you, you know, we can talk about, you know, you know, scaling from there. Let's talk about your first multifamily deal. Why did you transition from the single family space to multifamily? I'll kind of give you guys frame of reference. So there were plenty of coaches back in the day that would tell you that single family was better than multifamily. And they had great arguments, quality of tenant, longevity. And I don't think they're wrong necessarily. So I, for me, it was very important when I went up to multifamily to not give up my single families. Now, I think every guru now will tell me to sell off the nine portfolio, get your cash and go do a big deal. Right. Like that's the move. Right. Because I've gotten that advice like a thousand times. But for me, I, I did have kids and I did care about generational wealth. So me keeping the single families were more about them and making sure I had something to the side that I could just pick off. Right. Because single families, you can sell quicker, things like that. Right. But at the end of the day, multifamily is multifamily. You got one roof. You got one location, right? You got economies of scale. That's the word, right? That's the word with multifamily. It's about economies of scale, being able to fix one plumbing line once, being able to fix one electrical panel once, right? Or 20, but all in one blow, right? That is important um, not to have this piecemeal of stuff breaking on you all the time. One location, my time was getting more problematic. So I needed, I can't drive around 30 single families across Houston, right? So that was the catalyst. I do have a pretty cool story. Back during the crisis, two of the properties I bought, I bought at the same time from a wholesaler friend of mine who's a realtor, really good for that same friend that gave me that Rich Dad Poor Dad book. He wholesaled mm-hmm. me properties from a lady whose husband passed away who's kind of like an old school investor like me and she just wanted to dump the properties because she couldn't handle them, right? And this is during the crisis, so you know all kind of mess is going down, right? And um, he sold me those units. She didn't want to bother the tenant, so I had to buy them sight unseen. I could just drive by, but I couldn't get inside. 
what was cool is he was an old school investor. They had a package portfolio of like 30 and he literally had 25 of them, like literally on the same block that he would walk around to, to pick up his rent, which is kind of crazy. Right. And he lived like in the middle. It was like a wild, it was a really cool situation. Right. Long yeah. story. I could tell from the outside, he had decent roofs. He had decent AC units. And that told me that he at least took care of the property. And cause I had that much landlord experience. Right. I didn't have a ton of doors, but I had enough to know that. Right. And I told my friend, I said, hey, man, you know, the price that I come down. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to do the deal. You got, you got this $10,000 wholesale for, fee from me. I'm like, yeah, the price is right. Long story short, we bought those units 21 grand a piece. That's including wow. his smaller wholesale fee. So I'm all in for $42,000. Okay. For two properties that was written at 900 a piece. That's good math anyway you look at it, right? So that's 18 yeah. up for 40 grand. But again, we're still in the crisis, right? So everybody ain't buying. And that had to be a cash deal. So where are you going to get the cash from? And I just told you about the hard money situation, right? So, <laughs> so this ain't is a layup like people think. So I had I had about forty five grand worth of stock for my current company. Okay, that was all of our savings. As mm -hmm. a four one edge, really couldn't touch, but that really wasn't no money in that. And I told my wife, I said, "Hey, man, you cool with uh, uh me uh dumping all of our savings in this yes investment that we couldn't get into?" And she said, "Cool." <laughs> so, <laughs> So uh, we did that. We bought them cash because I had cash flow at this point, And these probably making $1,800 or uh, whatever. I didn't immediately do a bird deal on that. Probably like another two years later, I really started to get more comfortable with debt because with bird, you got to be comfortable with debt, right? And that's not all that comfortable with everybody, right? So I did. And at the same time, I'm looking at multifamily. So I cash those out a couple years later. They both was worth about 150 k So I get about $200,000 between the two properties. Like literally a couple years later, right? Mm -hmm. Two hundred in my pocket. Now I can do something, and I'm using my skills that I had learned along the way, going direct to seller. So I was able to go direct to seller for a 21 unit multifamily. Negotiate down. At this point, you know, uh, we are licensed as a team. My wife is licensed, so we kind of know some tricks. I got some tricks up my sleeve now. I ain't a full blown rookie, and and at this point, I had nine properties too. Mm -hmm. Right. So I, I felt I was comfortable as a landlord to level up. But in reality, I was going from nine to 21. So I was tripling my portfolio, so to speak. So um, we used that 200, bought a 21 unit complex for one point two million dollars. I didn't have a ton of money after that. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't have no bridge finance. Bridge finance is still really wasn't all that popular back then. OK, yeah. So um, and I went one by one rehabbing them, all that good stuff. Uh, and, um, you know, one by one, building it up, stabilizing the property. We had dope dealers there. We had ladies of the night there. We had all kind of ratchetness there. OK. And mm -hmm. I had to work all those tenants, get them all out, clean them up, do all that kind of stuff. And uh, uh, got a, a two million dollar valuation. That was three years ago. We had a two million dollar valuation and I got my first Fannie Mae. A small balance loan on that property on my cash out refi. So that was pretty cool. And then that kind of leveled me up to kind of look at some other stuff. And I really debated hard around going up or going sideways. I think most successful syndicators and people who are really leveling up, they will go up, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but for me, I understand how the market changes. I also at this point was managing 30 properties while working the full time. Full time. So at this point, I wasn't in no rush to be like, let me get a hundred doors. What I did was I actually got a, uh, I bought a, a Aplex through learning more about short-term rentals. And we turned that into a boutique hotel, same bird move, except now we're accelerating cash flow, right? Mm -hmm. Cash flow on that thing. And then uh, about two months ago, I just bought another 12 unit. 
So that won't necessarily be a short-term rental, but that was just a great deal that I was able to get direct to seller again. So for me, one of my big ones is just that buy right. I just start with the B man on Burr. All that four or five percent cap rate type of mess. I ain't really with that. But like I'm I'm not with that at all, you know, because that that's just an indicator that your cash flow ain't there. And you know, I don't really make assumptions in real estate. That's kind of like my other thing too. I don't really make assumptions about the market future. I, I do a lot of market analysis. I do a lot of market thinking, right? But I am a multiple exit strategy guy and I do not assume that I know I can force appreciation through raising rents and valuing the property, which I've become very good at. But I don't assume that cap rates are going to go down. I don't assume interest rates are going to stay at a certain place. Um, that's why I like to try to lock in my debt when I can in the moment. Um, forget the future. Like you want to look in the future and think, right? But also mm -hmm. I'm big about if I feel like I got a good, I can get a good interest rate right now and get some cash out, I'm going to take that move, yeah. you know? And if there's times where, so like last year, I spent the whole year cash out refinancing because it was cheap interest rates, right? Mm -hmm. Right now, guess what? I got, I got, a, I got a property right now where I know I got six, seven hundred thousand dollars in two. I know it, I know it, but it ain't mm -hmm. the best time doing that, right? Not from a long term debt perspective. So, yeah. uh, I'll leave, I'll leave the money in there a little bit. That probably differs me from most bird guys. I think a lot of the, the coaches tell you to get out and get your money back in six months. I mean, yeah, cool if you can, but real estate is dope. And the dope part about real estate is that time is our friend. And so I, I'm not one to I don't I'm, I'm not one to max out my equity uh, all the time. I like to kind of be at, at a good, healthy spot equity wise because vacancy is real. You know, cash flow is real. Right. Paying bills, repairs are real. And so I like to have heavy cash uh, and, you know, I like to have cash, but I like to have cash flow as well. I like the balance of it. It ain't all about getting the, the cash at the end of the day. It ain't all about the cash flow either. So I like to have a, a decent balance. And that's typically lower than the 75% LTV. Cash flow is my strategy as well. We can sit here and try to, you know, evaluate, hey, where is the market going to be from a cap rate perspective? You know, try to add, you know, 10 basis points per year, you know, which is the, you know, the standard on some sort of cap rate expansion on on your property when you're projecting an exit. But I mean, that's why I really love multifamily, right? Because it's the in-place cash flow that you can get. And then also you, you de-risk yourself, you know, compared to single family. But to your point as well, there are opportunities in the single family space to cash flow as well for people who are looking to scale up. I mean, I still own my single families as well. They're more liquid. That's that's a fact. Yeah. Yeah. It, hey, if you only need a hundred grand, right? Why do a cash out for, you know, like you only need a hundred grand, right? Or I just need this. I can go sell, I can go sell a single way faster than a multifamily. Like that, that's yeah. just right. So um I, I like that quiddity. I haven't done that yet, but I know I could, and that option is advantageous for me. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. If you're interested in passively investing in high quality real estate opportunities, then join our investor group at Merlin, M-E-R-L-Y-N-N acquisitions.com slash invest for direct access to carefully vetted real estate opportunities or head over to the show notes and click the link to join. Now let's get back to the show. How did you perform due diligence? Was the property located in a rough area? Talk about that a little bit. So I did study macro and microeconomic theory at the University of Texas. So, you know, I, I might be from the hood, but I do know my numbers very well. 
I've always done the strategy of investing before quote unquote gentrification. That that's based on institutional knowledge. And I talk about institutional knowledge. I know my neighborhoods. I know my zip code. I go to city council meetings. I go to these things. I watch. I pay attention to what's happening in the city. I use what I think is kind of common sense, but not so common. It's just basic core fundamentals. How core, how close is this property away from a freeway? I'm a block and a half away from a major freeway in Houston, even though it's the hood. I'm also 10 minutes away from downtown, even though it's the hood, right? So these are some of the things. I'm 15 minutes away from, from the uh, airport. IHA Airport. That's a made. That's one of the largest airports in the country, right? That's cool, even though it's in the hood. I'm 15 minutes away from our medical center, even though it's the hood, right? So these are the things that I looked at, that I saw, and I said, okay. And here's probably the biggest reason why I bought this property, even though it was in the hood. We were kind of isolated. There were no other apartments in a couple miles away, right? Like my comps really. We were kind of isolated, which kind of hurt from a comp perspective, but also helped. There wasn't a ton of single family. So we're across the street from a very, very large park. And the park wasn't crazy dangerous. It wasn't mess going on. So literally, I'm looking around. I'm saying, well, why do I got all this craziness in my apartment? Oh, it's me. It's my apartment that's the problem. The <laughs> landlord is the problem, right? Well, guess what? I've been doing it. I've been solving my own problems the whole time. So all I had to do was, okay, this area really isn't bad. It's the property that I just bought that's bad. So guess what? I can fix that. So that's different than the whole area being terrible, right? That's a little bit harder to fix. But I can fix my own problem, right, by doing some of the things. I knew how to uh, tenant screen. We knew how to work Section 8 and find good people on Section 8, right? We knew how to rehab, right? We knew how to make a quality product that good people would want affordable housing, but good people, right? Like everybody's not bad people in affordable housing, right? You know, I like to go get grandma. That's my avatar. We talk about avatars, right? And so I also come from a marketing and branding background that I didn't really talk about, but I also understand that, right? So I have a confluence of data, common sense, institutional knowledge, understanding avatars and how to market to them. Um, so I could find ideal candidates to help me stabilize this asset. So that's kind of how I approached it. And really, that's kind of how I approach most all my deals um, like that. Who am I serving? Who's going to be? What does the ideal tenant look like? A lot of my single families. I love truck drivers. I love nurses. I love teachers. You know, I love blue collar people that got blue collar jobs that just go to work and work hard. One of the things that's important to note is that you were able to find a good deal in a location that was likely turning around. You were able to find a property that needed some sort of work and love and attention and turn that property around in a market that's changing. That's really where you can make a lot of money in real estate is what I call level one, where you have a property in an area where investment is coming. You might start to see you know, maybe one or two shovels in the ground. But that is essentially the areas what are called path to progress areas, you know, yeah. areas that are turning around. There's liquidity coming into the market and there are certainly you know, an abundance of opportunities. So kudos to you for being able to sniff out that opportunity when others probably would have ran away from it. Yeah, most people will. Don't be the first. Don't be the last. Right. You know, if you can be second mover position, that's kind of what I call it. Right. Like you can win. And I agree. Like, but but see, I also say this. And see, I'm not a yield play only guy, right? I need equity and cash flow because I'm taking shots. I'm betting the farm. I'm betting my family's livelihood, right? 
I got to be on it, right? I'm betting that last savings. Now, I ain't doing so much of that no more when a much better place or whatnot. But the way I'm looking at it is I want good deals. All this mess is work, right? Like, if you're going to do, like, this this is not easy to go find these type of deals. So when I get them, I'm trying to get them. Now, I'm not doing a deal every month and all that kind of stuff. I'm not doing 20 wholesale deals a month. I don't do that, right? I'm taking my shots strategically. That's part of having to work, right? So the fact that I'm working, I don't have the time to go out and do all these crazy deals all the time. So they got to hit. And it's about taking chances. And And guess what? In the game, we are problem solvers, right? And real, real estate is a people business. It's about location, but it's about people. It's about problem solving. And can you solve a problem that the next guy could or the last guy could, right? And so for me, definitely my three multifamily purchases, there were clear indications that the current owner could not solve a problem. The first deal, the current owner could not handle the, the illegal activity that was going on. My second multifamily purchase, the current owner lived in Shanghai and had a rundown property that was falling apart and didn't care, yeah. right? And and my third owner was 91 and his daughter was 67 and she was done. And oh, by the way, they had 12 messed up breaker boxes that they couldn't afford to rehab. So mm -hmm. these are all things that I was able to solve um, in these three different scenarios, but you know, gone are the days. You know, five six years ago, if I would have gotten multifamily, you know, much earlier, I could have got some of these quote unquote easy yield play deals. But those deals ain't here, right? And so I had to get mm -hmm. what I had, and that's part of the game too. You got to get what you get, right? And you just work the best of it. And if you can problem solve, so one, if you can identify, I think it's the identification first, right? Seeing an opportunity where everybody else can. Then two, figuring out. What is making this seller distressed to sell? Because ain't nobody selling no perfect property, right? People don't do that. The property's cash flow rate, they're not selling it, okay? So something's wrong with the property. If you don't know what it is, you better figure that mess out real quick, right? And then third, if you can solve that problem that you've identified. Um, and I think if you can do those things, you, you, got, you got room for success. I 100% agree. We get paid, you know, as entrepreneurs to solve problems. I think even more important in today's environment, when we talk about trying to get deals to pencil, trying to find good opportunities, it's about finding the little problems on assets and figuring out, you know, what's the best way to capitalize on it? How can your management company or your operational expertise turn these properties around to produce a higher cash flowing asset? Being able to spot little opportunities in real estate is so key growing a huge portfolio or even growing, you know, a small portfolio or even just scaling your portfolio period when other yeah. people are turning away from, from opportunities. Why did you turn from the multifamily space to the short-term rental space? It's definitely a different, somewhat of a different space, but, you know, short-term rentals versus long-term leases. You know, I'm curious about that change. Basically, short-term rental solved several problems for me. One, it solved higher cash flow, okay? Two, it also forced me to build some systems that traditional long-term rental landlords don't have. And these systems are becoming very advantageous for me right now, even in my long-term rental business. So I had to learn some different things that they're not teaching in the long-term rental multifamily books. I realized that I really wasn't heading down the path that I had originally told myself that I was going to be down. And I had to ask myself, do I want, is this what I want because of ego to tell people that I need to have 500 doors or do I want $50,000 a month of cash flow? And if, mm -hmm. and so which one do you want? You want the 500 doors or the 250 doors to get $50,000 in cash flow? Or do you just want $50,000 in cash flow? Well, I just want $50,000 in cash flow. 
Yeah. <laughs> and, and now, now, granted, I say all this today, more than likely, I'm probably going to syndicate and raise some capital and go buy a whole bunch more doors <laughs> at some point because I'm mm-hmm. a dick. But, you know, I can do that on my own terms. And, you know, we're in a place now where we're not 100% there, but my wife was able to retire last year and she's helping manage the property. I'm not retired, but I can safely say I'm financially free. I can safely say I'm free, which most people can't. And so, you know, that's what short-term rental does. I don't know how long that market, this market's going to last. I don't know about regulation or whatever. I did buy this property with multiple streams of uh, exit strategies, for, so to speak. So I do have a lot of exit strategies in my in my in my gun now. You know, I can always rent it on traditional rent, still make money. I can rent on Section Eight, make money. I can go do VA, make money. I can go do government contracts and make money. I can go short term rental and make money. I can do mid term rentals and make money, which we're doing now. So I'm I'm doing a lot of different things. It's not traditional vacationer. We get a lot of travel nurses, all that kind of stuff. I was strategic in the property. So I'm not one of the people that say, oh, put all your properties on short-term rentals because we haven't yet. I just got one building on short-term rentals as a boutique hotel. And then we'll start to expand and see if it makes sense. But I'm a crawl before you walk out. I'm not dumping all the way in. And so far, I like it. And it has changed quite a few things to the good. There's a lot of stuff to learn, but it ain't, you know, and we'll see how long it lasts. But at the end of the day, if I can make more money today and if I just do it for three years, that extra cash flow flow dramatically changed the the performance of this property. Was that a, utilizing the birth strategy on on the short term boutique hotel or? No, I'm a value add investor regardless. Okay, I'm not buying retail ever. Okay, so <laughs> I, it, this like that's not part of my formula. Like my, the here's what you remember I said earlier: Burr is real estate, and if you're not really doing Burr, then I don't know if you're really doing real estate. So. This was a rundown property in the hood owned by some Chinese nationals that didn't live in America. See what I'm saying? This was a whole lot. I mean, this is how bad. Let me tell you how bad this property was. There were multiple tenants that hadn't had gas in like five or six years. So like no heat. Now, Grand Houston, so they ain't got to have that much heat, but no heat. And they were cooking on hot plates because they had gas uh, ovens. And they, and they. this is how terrible this living situation. Yeah. So for me, and I'm about to get passionate now, this is why I do this. So if you kind of hear the three properties I bought, these are all, for lack of a better word, crappy landlords. And so now I get to redevelop my own community. And I'll, and I'll be honest, I tell people never to buy on Emotion. I did buy this Aplex on Emotion because it was on the same street that I grew up in. I literally grew up five blocks away from this, this Aplex. And so I saw the property in disarray. It made sense. So I just didn't buy it off. It made sense within my criteria, right? It made sense with something that I wanted to try, which is short-term rentals. So it was a confluence uh, and emotional, frankly. And I get to say I redeveloped my own community that I literally grew up in. And this community just so happened to be one of the hottest communities in all of Texas, or I would say America, frankly, because Third Ward, I mean, people people, people hear about Turkey Lake and some of the places in, in Third Ward, like national, right? And so it was all kind of timed up properly to where there was a lot of reasons to buy this property, even though it wasn't the 40 or 50 units that I was really intending to buy, if that makes sense. Like I was intending to level up, but it's, uh, it was, it was kind of, I would argue that this property is the first of hopefully many of properties that we now as a family can enjoy. You're running to the cash flow that has the least amount of headaches that makes the most money possible. One of the things that I really love about real estate and why I got into it as well is just the 
double bottom eye investment that you can do, which is income and impact, you know, creating that cash flow that you can generate on a monthly basis, but also impacting your community. A lot of the areas that are turning around are happening in communities that need change, right? That need, you know, positivity coming through it. I'm gonna give you credit, but I'm still in that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let me ask you this, you know, if you were to start this entire thing over again, you know, this entire marathon, you know, what would you do differently? Yeah. I mean, I definitely, uh, my starting points were my starting points. That's not going to change mainly because that's what, I mean, I, I don't see a way for me to buy property any smarter starting out the gate than what I did. Okay. But I think I'll tell you where I screwed up over the year. I wouldn't call it screw up, but I tell you where I didn't, I had, I, I need to partner more and I should have partnered earlier. I should have gotten the multifamily earlier. If I would gotten the multifamily two years earlier and I had the capacity to do it, I had the capital to do it, man, I'd be super wealthy. <laughs> like, like, like yeah, the market like Houston, it's, that's a good market. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, like there, I mean, some of the properties that we're buying at, you know, that are quote unquote good deals at 75, 80,000 a door. I mean, I know I have the listings. Like I have the savings. Like like I've saved, let me be clear. I've saved every deal I've ever underwrote. And typically I'm underwriting eight, nine, 10 deals before I'm actually buying something, right? And so I'm looking at some of these deals that I passed on at like 30,000. And, you know, so I'm like, man, <laughs> so... If if uh if I would have um if I would have uh, partnered earlier if I would got more education earlier so I'm self educated you know truth be told I never bought a course never joined formally a re I've been a I went to a lot of re meetings but never become a an official paid member because I was one of those cheap guys so I think I probably should have gotten a lot more paid education earlier to get there quicker. I've had to kind of create my own blueprint, which gives me the knowledge that I have today, but I didn't have to go that hard. I made things a lot harder than what it needed to be, whether that's education, using other people's capital, raising capital, understanding debt better. So those are the type of things I probably should have done, jumping into multifamily and understanding the multiplication of that better. So if I would have did that earlier, you know, I would be a lot further along. But guess what, man? And look, I'm I'm barely 41, and that's you know a little bit long in the two, but you know I got a couple more years in me, and I feel good about where I'm at today. And I'm a big fan of people finding their own journey as well. I'm a big big fan of that. And you know I'm I'm not one to look at the Joneses either. Like I got like I said, I got a student. He got 500 units, you know, and I taught him right, but he got to where he got to, and his temperament's his temperament, right? Hmm. In my mind. So that's cool. You know, uh, now he's syndicated and raised capital, whatever. And for me, um, I've always been very cautious around taking other people's money. That was something that I very, very, you know, I grew up watching shows like American Greed. So I was like, man, I don't ever want to be on that show. So, you know, we get to where we get to. I'm happy with the journey that I've been on. Definitely could have improved, <laughs> you know, but, but hey, if you telling me a kid from Third Ward that grew up in poverty could have 50 doors, and be on your podcast, and that ain't bad. Amazing story. Man, this was a great time learning more about you. If anyone wants to know about you or your, you know, your coaching programs, or just follow Anaje and just learn more about what he's got going on. You know, how can our listeners follow you? Yeah, uh, simple uh onaj10k.com. That's O-N-A-J-E-10K.com. That'll pretty much lead to all my social media platforms, whatever coaching programs or classes I got coming up at the, any given time. You can kind of hit that up and see what I got going on. Most of the time I'm on IG or something like that, just giving 
giving out some free game or doing pop-ups, random lives, just showing you guys what, what I got going on. Because for me, you know, I didn't have a lot of education coming up, as I just told you. And some of the reason why I did not ask for help is because I was shunned earlier from being in certain types of rooms, right? I was, I, you know, my era, and I mean, I'm not crazy, crazy older than you, but my era did not have the social media stuff that's out there today. My era did not have, they had RIAs where, you know, it'd be 300 people in a room and I might be one of like two people that look like me. And, you know, people weren't all that cool with trying to give me no game, right? So, you know, that, that I would just tell people capitalize on the era that you're in, right? You know, once upon a time, people didn't have cell phones. Okay, now we got cell phones. Use these suckers, right? Use this technology. Use these resources. Use social media. Use the help that's being available to you as best you can, whether that's YouTube University or paying for somebody's course, whatever you need to do. You know, for me, like I said, you had to kind of read these books. It wasn't people on YouTube whiteboarding up stuff or whatever, you know. So, uh, but I'm still thankful for, for where I got to today. And I do plan on getting some some larger units. And, uh, and I plan on uh, jumping into the triple net space uh, on the back half of this year, too. So, for me, I'm, I'm, I'm constantly looking for uh, a better and better portfolio balancing. That's kind of where I'm at now. I want to balance my portfolio based on lifestyle. To your point about balancing a portfolio, I agree with that, you know, because, you know, multifamily is, although it's a great investment vehicle and it's, you know, recession resistant, it, it is. is very management intensive to, to a degree versus a triple net lease that is, you know, you can pass down the expenses to other tenants and, you know, you have a lease with a business that may, might close at around five o'clock and you don't necessarily have to answer to a lot of, you know, maintenance because the tenant takes care of it as well. That balancing aspect is something that I think it comes with the wisdom that you've grown with, you know, over time, right? You start off in, you know, multifamily probably because, you know, that's something that you could have afforded from single to multifamily. And now you're growing your portfolio and now you can transition into the more passive type investments of a triple net and just sitting back and collecting checks, right? Because in the triple net lease, they, they handle the repairs, you know, they handle the insurances, you know, the insurance costs, right? From a bill back perspective. So it's definitely more passive from that perspective and less management intensive than multifamily. You're absolutely right. But, you know, it takes time to get that wisdom to kind of understand that and building off of what you already know. Right. So, you know, single family, multifamily makes sense. It doesn't make sense to go single family to triple net. Like that kind of don't make sense. Right. You need to know how to underwrite. Multifamily is going to teach you how to underwrite. Like you're going to know how to underwrite if you're going to be successful in multifamily and you're going to have to underwrite well. What's crazy is, is that when you move the triple net, it's the same math. The math is exactly the same and it's probably easier because you got less units. Like the capital, the mm -hmm. asset probably costs the same, but you know, instead of managing 50 doors, you might be managing eight, right? And that is actually less work, you know? So, you know, but again, you're not jumping into that unless you actually know financing. Multifamily teaches you high level financing, right? It teaches you high level underwriting. It teaches you how to squeeze every dollar to, to, into the NOI line. You better learn how to squeeze every dollar, right? And this serves you well as you move into different asset classes, I think. Hey, so I really appreciate you uh, being on the platform today. Uh, thank you to all the listeners that are tuning into the Mogul Marathon Real Estate Podcast. This was an awesome show. And thanks so much, Anaje, for being here today. Man, appreciate the invite, man.
Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.